Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. For many years, Yanis Stavrakakis, a professor in the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, has been studying the issue of populism as part of his thorough research on discourse analysis. His interests range from the relationship between psychoanalysis and the political to the workings of ideology in politics. His work on populism has produced numerous books and collections of essays and has spurred the working group Populismos dedicated to the study of the phenomenon. In this episode, Yanis Stavrakakis talks about one of the most contested political terms of our time, how the discourse transforms the political field, as well as the interesting findings of the Populismus Working Group's recent study on populism and the pandemic. This is the Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Yanis Orespo-Admitriou, recording by Panagiotis Samios, editing by Stefanos Kostantinidis. Yanis Stavrakakis, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you very much. So it's uh, one of the most discussed terms of our time and you have studied it in uh, very thoroughly. Uh, the first thing I'd like to ask you, is there an objective way to define populism? Uh, you are absolutely right. Populism is a term that uh, has become uh, one of these terms that you, can, uh, you cannot uh, really avoid in any discussion, uh, whether we are talking about the media, whether we are talking about politics, uh, newspapers, whatever, or uh, uh, friendly discussions among uh, friends. It's everywhere. Um, there is also a big scientific and booming, in fact, scientific debate in uh, the social sciences, especially political science, about uh, populism. Um, there is a problem, of course, with defining the term, but I think this is um, this is something that happens with many, many terms. There is no fixed definition for any term uh, in the social sciences. In fact, maybe in the sciences in general. Uh, and thus, uh, one of the tasks of a proper, of a rigorous, if you want, uh, uh, scientific analysis of populism is, first of all, to 
uh, try to define it and uh, taking into account the long history of uh, uh, the phenomenon or the long history of uh, theorizations of the phenomenon, something we don't usually uh, take into account because there are many, many years now that uh, political theory and political science and social sciences have been studying populism. Usually we never take that into account. We think that uh, the way it is being discussed is perfect. It is obviously something very bad. It's something very problematic. It is a taboo term. It is almost an index, I would say. It is not just a normal, a standard signifier. Because with signifiers, you have different significations. This is a legitimate, this is how language works. This has become an index, that is to say, some sort of signal, which is excluded maybe from communication and signification processes and it works like uh, it is as if you see a red light in an ambulance or you know it means it signifies that there is danger uh, step back uh, something bad will happen to you if you come uh, uh, forward and so on and so forth and i think this is a problem we have to take into account the long history of the phenomenon the long history of conceptualizations of populism and then see exactly how the um, different language games uh, with regards to populism are played out in uh, in politics today because this is also this is also an important uh, an important problem but there is some progress uh, lately uh, in uh, arriving at some sort of uh, let's say minimal criteria that would be helpful in trying to identify uh, what is populist and what is not populist? Uh, what are these like? What are, what are these criteria that are starting to take shape? Look, there is a, there, there's there's of course a big uh, as with every uh, um, social scientific concept and especially con, uh, concepts which are uh, as we usually say that are uh, essentially contested. There are many different definitions and many different theoretical traditions and conceptual traditions, but I think that all of them, uh, based, well, maybe not all of them, but a very large majority, uh, tend to accept at least two criteria. And some of them add some, some more criteria, but maybe, maybe 90%, 80-90% of them maybe... Um, agree on two criteria, which is basically, the first one is uh, people-centrism. I will, uh, I will explain what this means usually. And the, the second, so the, the first one is people-centrism, and the second one is anti-elitism. Uh, the first one uh, means that we have a political discourse, we have a particular political program or a, a type of political rhetoric, uh, which is um, associated with the concept of the people. The people is a, is a concept that um, emerges very forcefully within uh, political modernity. We have popular sovereignty, sovereignty of kings uh, goes away, popular sovereignty emerges. And when you have a very strong attachment to this popular sovereignty, to the people, to the rights of the people, to the interests of the people, to the demands of the people, uh, then uh, this may be uh, the first criterion to identify uh, a populist discourse. Now, of course, especially because popular sovereignty is um, recognized as, a, as the very foundation of uh, liberal democracies and constitutional democracies, usually all constitutions uh, 
refer to popular sovereignty. Uh, almost everybody refers to the people uh, to some extent. So the question here is, um, is to arrive at some sort of differential identification. I mean, who, who talks about the people in a way which uh, reveals a very strong attachment? And who just makes a passing reference and maybe prioritizes other uh, uh, types of arguments in favor of uh, market sovereignty or uh, economics, technocracy, and so on and so forth. So, so it's a matter of intensity. It is a matter of intensity to a certain extent. And also, um, this is the reason why we need at least one more criterion. And the second criterion is anti-elitism, uh, which is that uh, usually you have uh, you have populism when this defense of popular sovereignty and this uh, discourse about the people is articulated in uh, antagonistic terms. That is to say, uh, you also have a particular um, picture of the social and the political sphere, which is dichotomic, which is antagonistic, which is polarized. So it is a It is a us versus them uh, schema. So you basically have the people on the one hand, and then against the people you have some sort of establishment, the government, the power block, uh, the hegemonic forces, uh, and so on and so forth. So when you have these two criteria, both these two criteria, I think, so you have an intense um, invocation of the people and um, some sort of uh, differentiation and opposition to some sort of establishment, then uh, one might argue that more or less uh, we can talk about uh, about a particular populist discourse. You mentioned uh, uh, we might find populism in a political discourse or a political program. Now, since you've studied uh, populism mostly in terms of uh, discursive analysis, uh, I want to, and uh, this is what we're going to uh, you know, deal with in our talk, but I want to ask you first about this. What is the what should the political program contain uh, to say that this is a political program that this is a populist political program? Uh, this is a very interesting. Uh, this is a very interesting debate. Um, I, I would probably. I think. I think discourse is a more accurate. Uh, and you mentioned that I am also uh, trying to use this uh, methodology in my work in general, but. Uh, Uh, it is more accurate because uh, discourse signifies a particular structure of meaning, but um, approaches this issue from, let's say, from a formal perspective. So the so the question is how a particular uh, program or a particular set of policies or a particular set of uh, priorities or ideals or anything like that, how exactly this is articulated. What what type of signification? Uh, emerges to to defend the one or the other ideal and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to say is that you could have different program, different political programs, and different. So this could be you could have a left wing program or a right wing program or a left wing ideal or a right wing ideal associated, articulated with a particular populist uh, form of expression, if you want. Um, and this, of course, creates the whole issue of typology. We can have a typology of different uh, populist discourses. But, um, uh, but in general, I would say that you can have different programs, uh, not, only, not only 
differentiating between left and right or inclusionary and exclusionary. This is another fashionable uh, distinction that has emerged. But also within within each particular camp, so for example, let's say that we study the left, you can have revolutionary uh, types of populism. The Russian populists in the 19th century were... Uh, it was a very complex movement with many different um, uh, currents and so on and so forth. But uh, some of them were Marxists, some of them were socialists, anarchists, uh, revolutionary against the uh, Tsar and Tsarist authoritarians in Russia. You can have reformist types of populism. So you, you can also have a reformist program uh, being attached, being expressed and articulated through uh, populist uh, discourse and so on and so forth. So it, it is, it is, and that's why many people talk about populism in terms of uh, thin-centered ideology, meaning that it refers to some sort of uh, pattern of articulation that can be attached to many uh, thick-centered ideologies. So you can have a socialist populism, uh, I don't know, other types of populism and so on and so forth. So that would be a first answer to this, uh, to this question. Yeah, but from what I'm getting from your, both from what you told me and your other work, um, it's like populism is something that is uh, that uh, sits on or works in parallel with actual real politics. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading this right, but this this relation between uh, how politics are conducted and how uh, populism uh, comes on as a debate. Uh, is uh, I actually have a lot of questions about this uh, for the for the rest of the conversation. So for now, I'd like to start this in a, in a historical manner. So you have uh, actually de- detected a shift uh, on um, populism uh, getting a negative connotation uh, in the work of Richard Hofstadter, the, the American historian, in, in especially in his mid-50s work. Now, yeah. uh, as it happens, uh, his mid-50s work is when he turns away from being a leftist to becoming uh, a liberal. Uh, towards, you know, more centrist ideas. Uh, could we say that this is the moment that uh, a certain brand of uh, radicalization of the center that we can associate nowadays with anti-populist uh, rhetoric uh, is born? Uh, this is uh, exactly right, I think. It is a very accurate uh, uh, description. Um, if I can say something about the first part of your, of your, of your, your, your first comment, uh, I would say that there is... In, um, we, we could perhaps say that there is something parasitic about populism in the sense that it is a byproduct of democracy. It is a byproduct of liberal democracy functioning. Uh, and that's why, uh, for example, Margaret Canovan, who was a very important uh, analyst of populism, uh, calls it the specter of democracy. Uh, democracy, um, after the big revolutions, uh, and mainly through a variety of struggles in the 19th century, the Chartists in the, in the, 18th, the 19th century. Uh, the Chartists, for example, in the UK is a very good uh, case in point and other um, such movements. Um, recognizes popular sovereignty, universal suffrage, and so on and so forth. But of course, there you have the problem of uh, democratic elitism, uh, something that was later to be formulated by Schumpeter, uh, who argues uh, very clearly that, uh, well, okay, we have this symbolic reference to uh, popular sovereignty, but uh, you cannot expect that people will really govern, people that will, uh, will really rule. We will always have some sort of elite which will be periodically um, 
uh, elected or re-elected or a new elite will come into power and this will uh, govern uh, in our place. Um, and this creates a, a, this creates a gap between uh, a gap which is uh, synonymous with representation to a certain extent. And this gap this gap becomes very big. Uh, somebody will come along and will claim that uh, the people are not represented properly. Popular sovereignty is not uh, uh, being properly uh, properly applied. Then uh, we have to change something. And this is where. Uh, this this intensity that we mentioned earlier becomes uh, more pronounced, and this is when you have these po uh, these populist movements. Now, the first movements to go back to Hofstadter to your point about Hofstadter, the first movements that uh, that were the Russian populist uh, the, the Russian populist that we mentioned, uh, and also uh, populism in the United States, which was um, very progressive, uh, egalitarian uh, movement in the 19th century, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, they, uh, around the 1890s, they uh, participated in the, in the 1892 presidential elections in the U.S., and they got, uh, I can't remember now, 89% of the vote. It was an attempt to... Um, the, the American political system was very similar to what exists today. You had the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, many people, especially poor farmers and uh, workers, uh, thought that their interests are not represented. It was a period of a very aggressive capitalist modernization. And they started cooperatives, and then these cooperatives led to the, to the creation of, uh, of the People's Party, the Populist Party. Um, and this was uh, this was very favorable. Uh, no, not very, but usually it was favorably described. And in fact, it seems to have influenced very much the New Deal by Roosevelt uh, later on in the 20th century, and so on and so forth. It was absorbed absorbed eventually by the Democratic Party. Uh, and this was the situation. The, the, the historiographical most historical views, historiographical views on the American populist of the 19th century was very, were very um, favorable. It was a very progressive, a very egalitarian, democratic movement. And then you have what you mentioned already, and I think you described it in very nice terms. You had a group of intellectuals. It was not only Hofstadter, of course, but I think he was a very pivotal uh, figure with the publication of The Age of Reform, his book in which he, ha he has this particular chapter uh, the folklore of populism, and you see already from the title, you have this uh, a little bit negative uh, inflection in which he, without making, uh, without having made very serious research on uh, on American populism, he introduces many of these stereotypes that still uh, that are still around us and form uh, public debate today. So the American populists were backward looking, they were uh, very much against modernization. All this was not uh, anti-Semitic, I don't know. He articulates many um, critical point, uh, points, the shoehorn theory. Of course, he had a problem with McCarthy and he thought that uh, the best way to deal with that is to associate McCarthy with uh, American populism of the 19th century, the two extremes. And as you already mentioned, the, this is where probably we we have the emergence of this extreme center, 
uh, which by the way was not only it is not only a question of uh, political uh, localization it is also a, i mean these people also had they believed in some sort of unilinear uh, modernization process this process can only have one uh, so it was a, it was a tina dogma if you want uh, avant la lettre so these people thought that um, you can only have one modernization it will definitely lead to the american model of capitalist democracy and anybody who is a loser who of course hofstadter says okay some people will lose out of that they have to stay calmly and uh, nothing will happen well this is a little bit uh, optimistic from this point of view people who are impoverished who are excluded who are not incorporated into the political system will not stay and cry silently in a corner they will create movements they will create parties they will try to take part in the democratic process and this is how most populist parties uh, emerge so i would agree that hofstadter is basically one of these figures that has uh, that have uh, shaped the debate and in fact most liberal uh, accounts circulating today uh, could be seen as a certain continuation of Hofstadter's views. You know, what's interesting about what you just described is, uh, is this. I was reading recently this um, this classic essay by Albert Hirschman uh, from 1991 on the rhetoric of reaction, uh, which is a classic text. And one of the of the modes of the rhetoric of reaction is that what, they are go- what it goes against is supposed to threaten, you know, the conquest of uh, progress Uh, and it, it seems to me like with Hofstadter and uh, the anti-populist rhetoric that followed up to these days, um, it seems like they, ha- they, have, they have taken this to the extremes, like they have taken this, uh, this type of reox- reactionary uh, rhetoric to mean, uh, to occupy, to mean the, the only way through progress. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can describe this in better terms. So, so I have this, this question that this critique of populism um, Uh, does it lay? Does it simply um, uh, lay a claim on progress, or is it, you know, progressives occupying the toolbox of reactionaries full on? In your opinion, uh, it is. I think it is. I, I would agree with what you say. It is a little bit more complicated, maybe, to the in in the sense that, um, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a big discussion. But uh, in in most cases, it is exactly as you as you as you try to put it. But uh, we should not forget that there are also uh, left types of anti-populism. That is to say, there is also a parallel argument which um, posits a very different uh, progress, a very different uh, scenario. But uh, the problem is that sometimes they adopt this unilinear... This idea that this is the only way forward. For example, in Greek, to, to give you an example, in Greek anti-populism, uh, which started with Angelos Elefantis in the 70s, who was the one who introduced the term maybe to uh, talk about Pasok and so on and so forth, you had this idea that uh, populism again is something that is abnormal, that is some sort of anomaly, because it uh, articulates certain progressive uh, elements, but... Uh, Um, escapes the what I would call a straight jacket of uh, um, of progress in the sense of the of, of the of the of the Marxist orthodox schema that you have to 
classes and everybody will be eventually, all identities and political projects will eventually articulate around the bourgeoisie and the, uh, uh, the, and the working class and the, and the working class and, and, and then eventually the working class will become victorious and so on. So, so you, you also have uh, a similar uh, unilinear schema, a different type of modernization if you want on the left and then again You have this idea, which is very similar to what happens with Hofstadter and all the, all the liberal or, or even reactionary uh, articulation of anti-populism, that populism is some sort of anomaly, some sort of very problematic, uh, uh, a priori problematic. I'm not saying some version of populism might be problematic anyway, but, uh, but not a priori. We have to study them, we have to see how exactly they emerge, uh, and so on and so forth. But the, to go back, uh, on, on the other hand, Uh, this is a rather marginal uh, argument. Uh, the mainstream reaction was what you mentioned, the reaction by Hofstadter and his uh, co-travelers and the people who came after Hofstadter and the mainstream even today, uh, which still assumes, okay, we don't talk about modernization anymore because modernization was a theory. It was a scientific theory in the social sciences, very influential in the 60s, in the 50s and the 60s. And... Uh, It, 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 it ended up very bitterly because it was associated with American foreign policy. Uh, and then the idea was, of course, if you believe very much that you are the only rational, truly rational, uh, progressive force, and that uh, definitely leads to a blend of capitalism and uh, constitutional uh, parliamentary democracy, Then, if you want to, and this happened in the concept, in the in the context of decolonization, if you want to approach other countries and um, sell them this idea, and then some of these countries say, "Well, I'm not interested. I want to follow my own uh, uh, way," and so on and so forth. Then, if you if you already think that your uh, way and your proposal is the only rational way, and uh, then it, it cannot be resisted. Uh, there is no scope for disagreement. And then you end up bombing these people if they disagree. And this is what happened with Vietnam and with other cases. And eventually, uh, modernization was discredited. And nobody talks very much about modernization. Okay, in Greece we talk a little bit about modernization, but uh, not in the US that much. Of course, you have other other way. I mean, this argument returns with the end of the argument there and the end of history of Fukuyama, the argument of the Tina dogma, uh, neoliberal, neoliberalism, so on and so forth. But in, in the states, you you can't find it that much in this uh, early form of modernization as a linear process and so on and so forth. Uh, of course, the, the 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 beauty of it is that just when it became discredited in the in the U.S. and I can I can tell you that if you go today and talk in a conference about Hofstadter to an American audience. Uh, many people would probably laugh because nobody really takes seriously that uh, that argument in its, in, in, its, in its original form. In fact, Hofstadter himself, who was not an idiot, obviously, he was a very important intellectual, he changed his mind and in 1969 he published another text which is retains some of the ideas of his early work but is not as critical as he was Uh, in his uh, in his early in his days in the uh, 50s and the 60s, but the um, to I I I'm, I I am talking a lot, but I, I just want to finish with this. 
I just want to finish with this, which is very, which is very important. Uh, the, the, the schema, the overall schema becomes discredited in the US and in other countries, but uh, there is a migration to the, semi, to the so-called semi-periphery. That is to say, uh, you have similar schemata and similar uh, ideas emerging in countries like, uh, okay, Muzelis defines the semi-periphery as, you know, the, the America. <laughs> Yeah, Greece, Greece uh, some countries in the Balkans or Southern Europe and Latin America and so on and so forth. And indeed, there is a very similar political culture and a very similar pattern of uh, political culture in these countries for various reasons that we can discuss later if you want. But in these countries, you have this schema becoming very, very uh, central. And, uh, and this is uh, still happening today. For example, in, in Argentina, you have the work of Gino Germani, in Greece, you have the work in the 70s and then later in the 80s and then 90s, and he, he is still active of uh, Nikiforos Diamandouros, and this has been used very much to articulate an anti-populist tradition in these in this countries. So, uh, and from this point of view, as you can see, uh, Greece is one of the worst cases because it has both uh, mainstream liberal or right-wing and left-wing anti-populism. This is, very, this, is very, this is a very interesting case, in fact. But it actually, they're not that distinct. I mean, uh, one evolved into the other <laughs> in some ways. I mean, uh, there are many people who were, uh, you mentioned, for example, Nikiforos Diamandouros, who has uh, the, this theory, but there is, um, from uh, reaching these uh, liberal modern, uh, for, in order to find these liberal modernizers and track their uh, record in their writings, you might end up in, you know, the, for some of them at least, in the leftist magazine of the 80s. <laughs> To see them articulated. This, this, this is absolutely true. There is a, there is a biographical aspect there. Okay, we know that that many people who are associated with the left in their youth then become uh, something else, and sometimes yeah. But here is an evolution of an idea. I think that's true. That's true. And there are also which is which is um, weird to a certain extent. There are also there is also cross fertilization between the two. That is to say, sometimes. Um, liberal anti-populism, for example, in Greece, might also refer to elephantis. They, 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 will, they will make direct references to that. And uh, so there is suspicion towards populism and towards references to the people uh, from both sides. And this was, of course, this is, uh, this is very productive to a certain, from, from another point of view. For example, I will, I will uh, mention briefly what happened with Laclau, uh, for example, who was my who was my my teacher and uh, he he was brought up in Argentina and in the in the 40s and the 50s and he experienced the rise of Peron and Peronism and this is what triggered uh, his interest on populism and um, and in fact he he he, he even argues that uh, most of his work even his post-structuralist work the work on discourse theory on post-Marxism was triggered by uh, a quest to uh, to to, uh, to enlist suitable concepts to try to understand identity formation, political identities, in order to explain Peronism. It's very interesting. And what happened, I think, in, in his case is, is is very instructive also for the Greek situation. Uh, what happened in, in, in his case was that he, that he was, for, I think, from his family, he was. Uh, he was maybe closer to this liberal uh, schema that, okay, you have this progress, modernization, and so on and so forth, and everything else is uh, an anomaly, an asynchrony, as German would put it. 
him showing him so forth, and it's very bad as a result. Uh, but he was also associated himself with left-wing organizations who also had this uh, slightly, di- slightly or very different, uh, but, but again, unilinear uh, scheme of progress that eventually uh, there is going to be polarization and uh, the working class will uh, emerge victorious. And then he, he was in between these two ideas and then in front of his eyes he saw a third option materializing, a person who comes out of the blue, out of nowhere, and uh, gets 50% of the vote. And uh, uh, by most accounts, uh, implements certain uh, quite radical uh, quite radical policy. And as a result, you have a tradition in Argentina, which today is very much left-wing, with Kirchnerism, and, uh, which has returned to power in, 19, in 2019, and so on and so forth. So, this was the, 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 the challenge for Laclau in front of his eyes, and this is how he, he tried to... It, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was what uh, made him, if you want, uh, try to see, okay, I have this scheme uh, which is a liberal one, I have this scheme which is a communist one, it's a left-wing one. Why are they both so negative of this, uh, of this movement, this type of movement, this type of discourse? And, and how, come, can, how, how can this discourse become so successful, uh, what is happening here? We need to develop a new theory, a new understanding of uh, society and politics in order to take that into account. And this is similar to what is happening in Greece. Eh? Because in Greece we have also these two very dominant discourses on the right or on the center and on the left, which, is very, which are very anti-populist. And then again you have a movement, you have a party like Syriza, which adopts to a certain extent Unconsciously, I would uh, I would argue it's not like Podemos that uh, uh, with Podemos we had people who were reading Laclau, who were in dialogue with Laclau, with Move. In fact, Laclau um, died in Spain, and uh, uh, they had very many contacts uh, with them, and they used his theory in order to develop their own project. In Greece, it was not the same, but to a certain extent, we can use uh, Laclau's theory to understand what happened. Again, I talked a lot, but... Uh, <laughs> That's quite interesting. <laughs> now, I, I want to ask you, I want to go back uh, a bit to the, the general, let's say, mechanics of how this populist, anti-populist uh, uh, discourse works. Uh, and I want to ask you this, that uh, one of the, the main accusations uh, against, thrown against populism uh, is that it's um, deceptive, right? Uh, and I'm thinking that you know, there are many, many far-right groups are noticing this, but this is, a, you know, this is actually true of also uh, populist reformer, reformists, like, um, uh, from this radical reform, I mean, like, uh, you know, the Five Star Movement, for example, or there, it's true of leftists, like, um, like Syriza, that, in fact, there are so many checks and balances in place that... Uh, no one, whether it's a, a far-left party or a far-right party, or even, a, let's say, a radical centrist party, they're not really allowed to, you know, uh, do well on the agenda they promise. So, in that sense, isn't actually fair to say that populism is deceptive? Uh, I want to say at least two things uh, on that. The first one, I... Is, um, I think you are a little bit optimistic on the on the on the on the nature of these checks and balances, and I, so I would I would probably say that one can be deceptive because uh, for another reason as well. Uh, I mean, not only because 
these checks and balances, for example, uh, journalism or other types of uh, control may not be uh, functioning properly. Um, this is one problem that, that a society can encounter. But on the other hand, um, we can have a situation in which the cognitive content of a... I mean, when people engage, let me put it slightly differently, when people engage in politics, they are not doing some sort of scientific or um, uh, purely rational uh, type of business. Uh, they might sometimes uh, believe or seem to accept something which might not be factually true, but uh, maybe it is a symbol that inspires them. Maybe I mean, politics is not is not a lab. It's not a lab in the sense of a scientific uh, laboratory in which we expect to produce some sort of absolutely rational result. There are a lot of the, the you know this this whole discussion about the passions about. Uh, um, and I'm not saying that in a, in a negative way. I think this is very important because this is how we live. It is like usually in my in my classes, I I try to give um, examples from uh, our uh, love experience and our love life. I mean, you don't you don't usually uh, get in love only with people that uh, you know due to a, due to a, according to some sort of rational calcula- calculation. I. Uh, I, 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 you know, as a homo economicus, I make a, have a small piece of paper and I say this uh, uh, sexual partner or uh, um, a wife or husband will give me. I'm, okay, I might be doing that to a certain extent, but this is not the whole business. And sometimes I go against my interests, uh, narrowly defined in an economic sense, for example. So I would be a little bit skeptical about that. Uh, but to go to your to your to your main questions, uh, to your main question uh, about deception. Obviously, deception is so uh, is so uh, central to human life that we cannot. I cannot see any way to uh, to limit this uh, to populism. I mean, this seems to me completely preposterous to a certain extent. I mean. <laughs> People lie all the time. People lie in all sorts of uh, scenarios and situations, and and, and sometimes um, you don't know. You don't want to know the truth, and sometimes you have very good reasons uh, uh, not to want to know the truth to a certain extent. Okay, that might uh, bring you into trouble eventually, but um, this is a, a stance in human life that we very often uh, see. But um, to limit our discussion to politics, all political families can be deceptive. You can have a liberal who is deceptive. You can have a right-wing person who is deceptive. You can have a left-wing person who is deceptive. I don't think that... Um, and then, of course, there is also... If we, this is if we assume that somebody is doing that on purpose. Uh, but also what complicates things very much is that politics, okay, in politics you have certain ideas, you have certain, you utilize certain symbols, you put forward certain strategies and so on and so forth. But then you have the challenge of the of, of reality. You have the trial. Uh, you the know, reality, reality principle. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. And then maybe sometimes you realize that some of your ideas were not uh, functional. Some other times you end up hitting your head in a wall because you see that there are certain systemic constraints that you cannot really overcome. 
and then you change, and then there you also have political competition. Your competitive, your political competitors will say something else that will force you to change your position. And then it becomes a very complicated game that I don't think it is very easy to to resolve in uh, uh, terms of uh, truth or false, absolute truth or absolute falsity, or uh, deception or uh, revelation, and so on and so forth. So my my main answer, to make a long story short, is that. Obviously, populism can be deceptive, but so can uh, all other ideological, political, uh, and political families. And that means that people who re- uh, who castigate only populism as if it was the only anomaly that exists in a particular political system are doing it for some particular gain because they want to discredit not only some sort of uh, bad populist uh, agent. But I think, and this is this is very problematic. I think the idea of the people them itself. I think that I, I think that sometimes, and this is a very big problem for contemporary democracy, behind anti anti populism, behind many forms of anti populism, is a, is a suspicion towards the idea of popular sovereignty itself. Uh, and this is also invested with all sorts of stereotypes about the plebs and about, and you see that uh, everywhere around us, every once in a while. Yeah, it's funny. There was an op-ed in the New York Times two years ago, uh, which showed that uh, the ones, uh, the political group that is more um, most skeptical of democracy and democratic institutions, uh, is actually liberals. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but. but I think this has uh, this idea, this rhetoric, this distaste for uh, uh, the people themselves. It actually might have an um, an imprint in how politics is done. I mean, does does this lead? Does this fear of populism uh, lead instead to a constant minimization of democratic governance? I think this is absolutely right, and and I would I would associate this fear of populism that you mentioned with what. Uh, Jacques here calls the fear of democracy. Eh? We, we can, and and uh, Rancière talks about populism many times. He says populism is the name under which uh, a certain fight against democracy itself is being fought, is being staged. And this is a very big problem. Um, of course, it also means that democracy st- and this idea of the people still remains quite strong because its opponents cannot really uh, attack it frontally. Which is which is interesting. Uh, uh, nobody really talks, uh, which creates another problem, of course, that everybody seems to accept democracy, but then um, might try to uh, turn it into something else uh, uh, completely. But uh, it is it is it is interesting, though, that people cannot really frontally attack democracy and the people and so on and so forth. So they do it through populism. So. Populism is the specter of democracy. It's supposed to be some sort of uh, um, byproduct, uh, negative byproduct of democracy, a corruption of democracy, if you want. But sometimes, when you attack this corruption, you end up attacking democracy itself, and this is a big problem. On the other hand, we also have to take and you you mentioned the extreme right, the far right, uh, in your uh, previous question, but I didn't um, uh, answer that. Um, Obviously, there is no copyright. Uh, the, the language, and especially within politics, does not work like that. It would be very nice. It is some sort of fantasy. Eh? It would be very nice 
to to have some sort of scientifically accurate description of the, what democracy is, what the people is, and this is the real people, this is the authentic people, and then anybody else who is trying to use that in order to uh, put forward hierarchical or uh, extreme right or uh, other types of uh, arguments would be would be excluded. But it doesn't work like that. There is no copyright. Uh, and anybody can can articulate uh, some of these demands or some of this rhetoric in his own or her own uh, argumentation. Um, and this creates another problem, of course, because we have to distinguish every time. So there is a double blackmail. There is a liberal blackmail, if you want, that says to us every time, uh, don't talk about the people, don't uh, talk intensively about the people, don't talk about democracy very much, don't talk about popular sovereignty, because when you do that, you might end up uh, endorsing some sort of corruption of democracy. And there's another blackmail that says, um, well, you can, talk, uh, you can talk about it, but when you talk about it, you have to mean... You, you can't mean it seriously, you cannot mean real popular empowerment. You must mean that the people is uh, betrayed by this particular elite and the new heroic elite, uh, extreme right elite, uh, elite has, to, uh, has to govern in the place of the corrupt elite, uh, corrupt liberal uh, elite of today. And, and this is how things will, uh, how things will progress. So uh, people uh, are usually have to deal, they have to deal with this double blackmail. Eh? Uh, this is a situation in which some sort of other orientation um, that says that, uh, okay, populism can be uh, a corrective of democracy because democracy maybe has acquired a very elitist direction. Uh, you have this whole discussion about post-democracy in uh, Rancière, in uh, Chantal Mouffe and other people. Uh, obviously, uh, democracy is not, and especially after the pandemic, we have seen that in many countries, is not uh, living its most uh, uh, successful uh, period. Uh, so this is something we have to take uh, into account. So on the one hand, arguments about popular sovereignty and about a better kind of representation uh, are bound to emerge. It doesn't seem to me very bizarre that these arguments are emerging. On the other hand, uh, a lot of people who realize that, but they, but they are attached to the extreme right or to that kind of uh, politics, will try to use this, like Trump, for example, will try to use this rhetoric in order to advance their own uh, hierarchical, authoritarian uh, agenda. This is, this, this is the double bla uh, blackmail, the double problem we have to face as democratic citizens and, and as academics as well. It's funny that you mentioned these two things because <laughs> I, only, I can only ask about one of them, <laughs> whether it will be what happens after Trump now uh, and also what happens during the pandemic. But since you have uh, worked on, uh, uh, on populism and uh, the pandemic and produced a report with your populismus working group, um, I'd like to ask you this. Uh, from what I saw, you found uh, that uh, uh, the, populist, uh, the, the populist governments around the world are had very different reactions to the pandemic, right? Why is that? 
Uh, it, I think this, this brings us full circle to the beginning of our discussion, because if you remember, we talked about this distinction between policies and strategies or uh, policies and discourses, uh, programs and uh, discourses, so on and so forth. And this is the, 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 uh, the pandemic uh, should be seen in this light. That is to say, there is no, there is no natural, if you want, uh, a policy, health policy that follows from a particular populist discourse or a particular um, populist strategy, um, you, can, you can have an argument that uh, policy number one, uh, lockdown, or policy number two, which is exactly the opposite, is in favor of the people. You, ca- you can have both arguments uh, happening, and then you will see what will happen in the ground. Uh, and what your com- political competitors will say, and uh, the situation will uh, unfold. Uh, what we have seen in this report that we did, with ed- we edited with Joros Katsambekis, who is a lecturer at the University of Loughborough, and we had worked together, he was a student of mine, and we had worked together in uh, the Populismus Project, and this report is accessible uh, in our site, actually, which is populismus.gr. Um, we have uh, collected 16 reports from 16 different countries around the globe, and this reveals exactly what you mentioned: that there is no, there is no direct. Uh, well, first of all, that the 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 early liberal argument that you have seen in many international media that uh, the pandemic is killing populism and so on and so forth is not the case. Um, But the second important uh, conclusion is what you mentioned, that uh, there is no single uh, policy against the pandemic that all populists around the globe have been following. And you have very different responses from Duterte in the Philippines to Fernandez in Argentina and Trump, of course, and Orban. And and the same happens with liberals. You have liberal governments that follow the one uh, direction. You have liberal governments that follow a different direction, and so on and so forth. So it is one of these cases, I think, that in, in, at least in most cases, the pandemic has been used in order to, in this, in this war that we have mentioned between populism and antipopulism, uh, and it has been used from a liberal side in order to discredit, uh, to discredit populism. But I don't think this is the case. This is not corroborated by... Uh, by the by the evidence, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, and on that note, Yanis Avrakakis, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you very much, Kozanon. <laughs>